0: Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, And for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode.
1: Diversity training to date, it has not really addressed marginalization of racism, privilege at all. It's just kind of been race, gender, age, sexual orientation. And in my view, they've done a very poor job.
0: Welcome to Human Resource Development Masterclass, the podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and throughout this second series, I'm joined by leading authors, researchers, and scholars to explore the fundamentals of HRD and how those are changing in the 2020s. Our focus for this episode is marginalization and privilege and we'll be looking at what it means by the terms marginalization and privilege, how marginalization and privilege connect to HRD, how to question your own privilege and learn from others' lived experiences, the effectiveness of diversity and inclusion training in addressing marginalization and privilege, how to prepare HRD professionals for working on marginalization and privilege, and much more. To help me, I'll be joined by three leading scholars. Dr. Julie Gedrow, Dean, SUNY Empire State College, Dr. Chaunda L. Scott, Professor, Oakland University, and Dr. Joshua Collins, Associate Professor, University of Minnesota. In the first part of the episode, I'll chat one-to-one with each of them. Those one-to-one conversations are brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, Interpretive Simulations. Find out more about their services at interpretive.com. Then for the second part, Julie, Chaunda, and Josh are together to explore their shared interest in marginalization and privilege. That group conversation is brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, the Board of Directors of the Academy of Human Resource Development, who invite you to attend the 29th Annual Research Conference in the Americas, being held in Arlington, Virginia, February 23rd to 26th. All of the content you'll hear in this episode was recorded during September and October of 2021. Right, let's dive in to meet our guests. Here in the first section of the episode, I'll meet one-to-one with each guest. This discussion is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of Interpretive Simulations. Since 2008, students and trainees have used Interpretive Simulation's HR Management Simulation where participants are tasked to make challenging decisions at the HR Director level in a simulated environment. Students must build a strong HR function at their simulated, medium-sized organization and wrestle with the challenges of staying on budget. The simulation makes the connection between concept and practice, while students learn by doing. It comes with assignments, mini-cases, and quizzes to reinforce core HR principles. If you'd like to receive faculty access to review the HR management simulation, visit them at www.interpretive.com and fill out a demo request. My first guest for the episode is Dr. Julie Gedro, Dean of the School of Business at SUNY Empire State College, where she's also a tenured full professor. She worked in human resource management and development positions in financial software and telecommunications companies in Atlanta, Georgia, before joining SUNY Empire State College. Julie's awards include the SUNY Chancellor's Award for Excellence in Scholarship and Creative Activities, the Jane Alters Prize for Outstanding Community Services, and the AHRD Cutting Edge Award. Her scholarship focuses on career development and leadership development. Julie is the editor of the book series, Palgrave Explorations in Work Stigma. She's past president of the Academy of Human Resource Development. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on marginalization and privilege.
2: Thank you, Darren. It's wonderful to be here.
0: So how about we start by exploring... Terminology and what's meant by the terms marginalization and privilege, and, and what you see is the relationship between those two terms.
2: Marginalization represents the devaluing of a person or population based on some characteristic or set of characteristics that they possess. And those who are marginalized exist in a subordinated status at the fringes of a system, and they lack voice, visibility access, choice, and agency. And I appreciate activist and educator, Peggy McIntosh's definition of privilege as a set of unearned and unacknowledged advantages. The relationship between the two is that they produce inequities in a work group or system. Marginalization stifles and suppresses. It extinguishes hope, promise, and potential. Privilege sets up dynamics in which people have advantages or assets, social capital, for example, that inequitably favor them. And Shaw and Lee, 1994, in their book, Women's Voices, Feminist Visions, second edition, McGraw-Hill, describe privilege, domination, and oppression as a ranking of differences based on natural or mythical norms. For example, male is the privileged position and female is an oppressed position. Young tends to be privileged and old tends to be oppressed or marginalized. Able-bodied versus differently-abled, heterosexual versus LGBTQ, Male and masculine, or female and feminine, versus gender non conforming. And examples go on and on. I think of privilege as the moving sidewalk at an airport, in which one who's walking on it is propelled faster than one who is walking on the regular static floor. Same effort, different result. And also, perhaps less fatiguing for the person who has access to the moving sidewalk because there's another power assisting them. Privilege is like that. And I think and have thought for some years now this, how can an organization reach its full potential in being productive, effective, efficient, and a constructive and uplifting place to work? If some people have a set of advantages while others do not, and while others are in the shadows, the sidelines, and who operate in subordinated positions. And by subordination, I mean relegated to a job or part of the organization in which there's little to no growth or potential. And a specific example of the dynamic of marginalization or privileging might be the hours that work meetings are set in an organization that might not take into account employees needs to attend to children. For example, late, late afternoon hours or early morning hours. And on the other hand, the assumption that those who are not of child rearing years or do not have childcare responsibilities are willing and available for extra projects could be problematic. Nevertheless, marginalization and privilege can be dynamic and unpredictable mechanisms. They pertain not to what you do, over which perhaps one could have some control, but rather who you are. And those who are at the margins of a system or society are left out unseen, unheard, and under-resourced.
0: As I listen to your descriptions there of marginalization and privilege, I'm wondering, in your experience, are they binary concepts, i.e. somebody is either privileged or not privileged, or is there a continuum where somebody can be a little more or a little less privileged?
2: They're fluid constructs both of them, and they're not off on zero one and mutually exclusive. And let me me explain. One might have white privilege, but be a member of the LGBTQ community. So different types of privileges and different types of subordinated statuses can interweave. And the impacts of these dynamics play out in the larger society and they manifest in the world of work. And it's important to emphasize that I've never think of these sort of dimensions and interweaving of marginalization and privilege in a hierarchical fashion. I don't think of these constructs in a competition, uh, but rather they're, they're fluid, Over time and based on context and company and organization, it's complex and it's on on a continuum. So age is an example of the fluidity of identity. Generally speaking, and particularly in the United States, age is negatively associated with privilege. Layer on top of age, a type of social category Female, high school educated, no college, who is perhaps already marginalized. According to the National Women's Law Center, women were 35% more likely to live in poverty than men in 2019. And older women are likely to be more likely to be poor than men. So not only is identity a fluid construct within itself, but the way that identities are stigmatized and pathologized is fluid. For example, it was only in 1973 that the American Psychological Association removed homosexuality from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM. Drescher's 2015 article on the U.S. National Library of Medicine, National Institute of Health website explains this.
0: When you look at those concepts of marginalization and privilege, how do you see them connecting to HRD?
2: Marginalization suggests that there are types of identities that are normal or natural, and they represent a dominant perspective or set of characteristics. It's the othering of people who have qualities or characteristics, real or perceived, that position them outside the mainstream. So HRD research theory and practice connect because marginalization creates conditions by which an organization has a drain on it because of the outsider positionality of those marginalized and privilege results in inequities across a spectrum of HR related dimensions. Those with privilege have a different set of rules or they can be thought of to have a starting line that is farther out than those who do not have privilege. Part of how I envision HRD is to help people develop resources within a work or career context. And of course, HRD is situated in the organization, the workplace, the employment arena. And my interest in research theory and practice is to equip people to acquire increased resources and capacity so that they're able to pursue work that is meaningful and prosperous. And I mean both of those, meaningful and prosperous, relatively and subjectively. And what benefits an individual benefits a group. What benefits a group benefits an organization. And one of the first interventions that comes to mind is the potential power of employee resource groups in an organization, when, particularly when they are strategically aligned with the organization and have an executive champion or executive sponsor. Uh, there's tremendous potential in that type of uh, initiative in an organization. So that's, that's one area. And of course, a careful look at um, who is selected for uh, stretch assignments and what is the strategy around mentoring and sponsorship and coaching. And, and, and so, so those are two key areas that I could see HRD playing a very strategic and important role.
0: I want to ask a question about why organizations, leaders and HRD professionals care about marginalization and privilege. But there's a piece of me that, that feels like that question is underpinned by, well, it's just the right thing to do but the evidence is that organizations, leaders, and HRD professionals haven't always cared about marginalization and privilege.
2: There's an instrumentalist dimension to why senior leaders and people in decision-making capacity and HRD researchers and practitioners should address these issues. For example, if one is a member of a marginalized group and has to creatively construct ways of existing in the workplace. Would the energy spent on survival not be much better spent on the job itself? There's a dimension too of human resource management that connects to these considerations, which includes the interest in avoiding illegal actions such as recruitment and selection, compensation models that demonstrate compliance with anti-discrimination laws. And this is a bare and rickety minimum. And anti-discrimination laws are not comprehensively effective in working to reduce or eliminate the deleterious effects of marginalization or toward addressing the inequities that can arise from privilege. The dynamics of marginalization and inequities can often be but are not always visible and discernible. So there are output, effectiveness, and efficiency rationales for why senior leaders and decision makers should care about these. And one of them is the the drain on resources from a effectiveness and efficiency and worker output standpoint and from a legal and compliance perspective. And, And my hope is that organizations and corporations are far beyond that that bare minimum of why why we should care about these considerations. So when there's marginalization in an organization, it's limited in terms of its capacity to grow and flourish, just like this occurs at an individual level. These are questions regarding who has access to resources, decision-making, developmental opportunities, performance management, and coaching, sponsors who can make introductions and facilitate relationships and networks. All of these questions relate to HRD. And the more directions our research and theory building pursue in order to understand what's happening around, underneath, or through these complex factors, the more effective we can be in working to create thriving systems and organizations in which access is not restricted based on someone's identity.
0: So if you were to walk into an organization, what would you look for as you look around it to get a sense as to whether this organization is caring about marginalization and privilege?
2: What I would look for includes these considerations, the narratives. Whose stories are memorialized in company myths and legends? Influence, who has the ear of the CEO or the the key senior leaders? Who has decision-making authority? Who is seen and who is not seen? Who is heard and who is not heard? Who counts and who is valued? Who has choice and options and movement? Who has hope, who is supported, developed, sponsored? Who has the luxury of a plan B if plan A doesn't work out? Who has to self-teach, self-advocate, negotiate around or through systems versus who has a clear path toward a fulfilling career, job, work day, and then by extension, life?
0: I was thinking about the limit to which a marginalized group have the power in an organization to make things better. They could only do so much because they're marginalized. So like, who does have the ability in an organization to address marginalization and privilege? Does that have to come from the top?
2: I would like to think that the CEO role or the, the senior level role who fills those roles becomes expanded over time as, as we, I hope, progress in addressing marginalization and privilege in organizations, that that, that that CEO become a person who of an identity who we might not have imagined 20 years ago on a pragmatic note if there's a business case that can be made for addressing inequities in an organization and certainly there are ways to make a business case and i've i've touched on some of the compliance angles and the productivity dimension of addressing marginalization those are two key types of ways to think about making a business case for giving voice to those whose voices are muted or raising up people who have identities who might not otherwise be seen. This is a little bit less direct of a route to get there. Play the greatest role that we can in leadership development to educating leaders and high potentials to have a greater sense of awareness and education and sensitivity to marginalization that they have a wider frame of reference that perhaps this is aspirational. They are already looking for those areas to lift people up.
0: I'm conscious that we need to wrap up the uh, first segment of the episode. But before we do, I would really like to finish by exploring how this relates to your own research agenda. And and I know you've researched a lot in this space. So I'm interested in what you've learned from your own research and writing on the subject.
2: How far we've come. And how hopeful I am. It's my re- initial response to that question. There's been an emergence of issues related to those who are marginalized in HRD scholarship. And subjects have been examined such as LGBTQ, disability, addiction and recovery, ethnicity, race. I've seen, I've seen increasing visibility of subjects that have a wider scope and a sensitive lens in the conference proceedings and presented at our conferences and town halls and keynotes. And I see a wonderful array of subjects that are covered in our journals. Back when I began to engage in the academy in the early 2000s, it was daunting to write and present about LGBTQ issues in the workplace and related topics such as gender identity and expression and women and sexual minority status. And over the years, there has been an increasing amount of scholarship on the subject and my experience and observation has been that the journal editors and reviewers have been receptive and encouraging of these ideas and beyond of exploration. So the bottom line is I'm very hopeful. There's a lot more work to be done. I look forward to playing a part in doing it, but there's, there's wonderful scholars in our field who are exploring these areas and, and breaking new ground.
0: Well, Julie, thank you so much for our conversation today. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to take a look at marginalization and privilege with you. Thank you. Well, please stay with us and we'll have you back later in the episode for our group conversation with Chonda and with Josh. But for now, thank you so much indeed.
2: I look forward to it. Thank you, Darren.
0: My second guest for the episode is Dr. Chonda L. Scott. Professor of Human Resource Development in the Department of Organizational Leadership at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. She also serves as the Coordinator of the Graduate Human Diversity, Inclusion, and Social Justice Certificate Program, and the Diversity and Inclusion Specialist for the Office of the Dean in the School of Education and Human Services. Her scholarly teaching, research, and service activities are focused in the area of human resource development workforce diversity policies and practices, social justice education, post-apartheid diversity and social justice education, and eradicating racism. Dr. Scott is a Fulbright Scholar and advisor to the Academy of Human Resource Development's Anti-Racism Committee. She's also a steering committee member of the AHRD's Workforce Diversity and Inclusion Special Interest Group. Hi, Chonda, Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on marginalization and privilege.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to it.
0: There's a number of places that we could start for the conversation, and I'm thinking that a good one would be around the fact that people talk about the importance of lived experience when it comes to marginalization and privilege. But I wonder what's meant by that term. What do we mean by the term lived experience?
1: Well, I see lived experiences as being an individual's personal knowledge of the world gained through direct hands-on experience with, a, you know, with an issue or episode in life. So it's a personal lens that the individual has come up with to define how they feel, what they see, and sometimes what should be done about it. So I think it really has a lot to do with it's an individual personal knowledge of some kind of direct experience they've had with an issue.
0: So how has your own lived experience influenced how you view marginalization and privilege?
1: Um, Well, As a person who, you know, a person of color who is, you know, no stranger to these topics and their meaning, um, I think I've understood it through other people of color's experience with marginalization and privilege. And then I've come up against some of those roadblocks, you know, myself, where, you know, people see me differently or opportunities are not suddenly the same for me once I arrive on the scene or, um, so I think having that firsthand experience with it myself and then understanding it through the lens of others, whether they're my friends, family members, or what has in some ways prepared me (laughs) to know that, that this will probably happen to me. And, um, helps me better understand why it happens, even though it shouldn't be happening, but it's the way of the world.
0: So, so does this mean then that you and somebody else could look at the same situation and view it differently because you're viewing it from essentially different lenses, different lived experiences?
1: Yeah, possibly it, if that person was from a different race, than mine, but you know, normally, you know, if I discuss experiences that I've had with marginalization and privilege, you know, with people from my own race, you know, they automatically understand where I'm where I'm coming from. A perfect example would be I can remember when I got accepted to Harvard University as a master's student, so I was um, flying to Boston from Michigan and I'm on the plane and you know so I got bumped up to first class so I was very happy about that so I took my seat I was by the window and so then this other man who was quiet he sat down next to me so he said hello I said hello and then you know we were quiet for a while then he asked me uh did I live in Boston and I said no I had just got accepted to Harvard University you know for the master's program in education and then he says to me quickly, oh, well, that school is not as good as it used to be. <laughs> um, so at that point, it was like dead silence because I guess he realized what he had said. Yeah. And I was just highly offended. And so finally we got to Boston. And then as we're you know getting our stuff from overhead, he says to me that he wanted to apologize for what he said. I mean, again, these are everyday lived experiences that people experience, you know, with people saying things, maybe they don't mean to say them out loud, but that's a perfect example of that question.
0: Do you think that people are aware of how their own lived experiences actually impact them on, on a day-to-day basis? As in it, it sounds like in that situation that Perhaps he was or perhaps he was when you reflected on it for a while. But do, do you feel as if that's common, that people are aware of how their lived experience influences their behavior?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think people, especially, you know, generally white people think sometimes that that everybody has the same opportunity you know, so now that, you know, there's no more slavery and people are living next door to each other going to the same schools. And so a common phrase that's always used, well, you know, they should just pull their up by the bootstraps. and But it's just, it doesn't work the same way. You know, I mean, you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And then as soon as you get ready to go to Harvard, then it's not as good as that school is not as good as it used to be. So, you know, I think people are seeing it from their lens, but their lens doesn't have space for you to fit into that. You know, it's not the same for you. And even though there are some opportunities, there are more opportunities that are available for people of color today, even though when when you get those opportunities, there's still, you know, it's like some challenges with marginalization you know it's just not the same it's not the same for everyone
0: if you hear people talk about like the term like it's a level playing field but presumably the people who say it's a level playing field it looks level to them but it doesn't look level to everybody right. else
1: and as coronel west would say level for who that's the question for who so, you know, it's, it depends on your standpoint, just, just like you said. It's an everyday lived experience for those people who are just experiencing things like that. I can remember when a colleague from mine, African-American colleague from mine, we were at a conference in Virginia, and so we decided to go shopping after the conference at a nearby mall. And as soon as we went into the store, then people started following us around the store. Wow. You know, and there was other people in the store and they and they weren't following them around. So I mean, these are just everyday experiences. And we were just shopping. <laughs>
0: In a past episode, uh, Torrance Sparkman was talking about a time when uh, he went with, I think, with, with a group of students and uh, left the United States and went to a different country. And they were lined up at a coffee shop waiting to be served. And he was several people back, and it was his first experience of having the person serving. Essentially, talk over all of the people in front of him to talk to him and to serve him first because he was in a culture where all of a sudden he was in the majority.
1: Right. And I think there's just, you know, it's just so eye opening to, I guess, be in that lived moment when those things happen because it's kind of like, wow. Why is this happening? I mean, even at my own institution, when I first started working there, you know, you're walking down the hall to go to the copier, and somebody is coming into the university looking for the dean's office or whatever, and they stop me and say, "Excuse me, are you the secretary?" I mean, why do I have to be the secretary?
0: Yeah. Now I- I'm sure there's there are people for whom this is. A part of their like daily existence, and there's presumably parts of society f- for whom it isn't. They they've been they they live almost blind to it, but then key events suddenly raise their awareness, where all of a sudden marginalisation and privilege is being discussed a lot in the media and in social media, and and I'm wondering. Whether you've seen much change happen as a result of all of that activity, all of those discussions?
1: Well, I do see, you know, people gathering to have more more conversations about it. You know, I see more, you know, organizations, um, you know, corporate organizations like funding efforts in various states that have to do with social justice and diversity. And and so in a way, I see those happening. I just noticed on the news today with this Gabby Petito that was missing and, you know, unfortunately lost her life. Then there was a report after that saying, you know, why is all the focus on Gabby when there's, you know, a lot of people of color that have been missing that didn't get any news media. And so now today, they were kind of focusing on a young man who was in medical school in Indiana, an African-American man, and now now they're highlighting that case. And then uh, Gabby's parents were on the news yesterday saying that, you know, they hope that, you know, this will spur the media to focus on all the other people who are missing as well. So I was happy to see that. I was happy to hear that, you know, because... It just seems like, you know, only one group of people can get the focus of the media and then no one else can get it unless it's in the negative light. I was happy to see that the media was actually doing something about it, not just reporting that this is an issue, but now they were reporting on this young man that had been missing long before Gabby Petito was missing.
0: And to what extent do you see some of that actually starting to deliver widespread change or or do you feel it's really just chipping away at the edges?
1: Yeah, well, I think right now that, you know, people genuinely do want to do something about it, but they just don't know what to do. So everybody's having a discussion and, you know, they have the discussion and then that's, that's what they do. So my suggestion would be, yes, keep having the discussion with goals and action plans in mind. What are you going to do? What are you going to contribute? How are you going to start helping to chip away at this problem? Because just having a discussion with no action is useless, worthless. So I think that, yes, we do have to talk about it. But we need to talk about it with a goal in mind to do something. You know, when you're getting in your car, going to the grocery store, you have your goal in mind. You know where you're going. You know, you're not just driving around. So I think people need to, before they get these groups together, they should do that. And then I'm concerned, you know, as a workforce diversity expert myself, that there's just a lot of people popping up being experts about this topic, uh, marginalization, privilege, social justice. And we never heard of these people before. So I, I'm concerned, where are these people getting their knowledge from? Um, is, is this just a hot moment in time to where you know, people are just jumping on the bandwagon? So I'm concerned about some of the teaching and some of the strategies and some of the discussions that are being happened uh, with these groups, because we don't really know what their training is in that. That's kind of alarming to me because people before who were never talking about this topic, now
0: they're leading it. So it's, it's scary to me. If there's clearly people out there who, who are new to the scene, but don't appear to be, what advice would you give to somebody about what to look for? As in, how, how would you pick the right people to come in to help you?
1: Well, I would look for people who would at least have some kind of educational grounding in the, in, on those topics, whether they have classes or certificates. I would look for people who are, you know, working in nonprofit organizations that are really focused on this work. And have a handle on you know what really needs needs to be done. I would look for college students, maybe through internships or whatever, that are very interested in getting in, into this work and need to get some experience. But you know, I guess what I'm saying is I don't want to just hire somebody who is the HR manager and now they're head of diversity all of a sudden because that that wasn't their focus. So. To me, that's, that's doing more harm than good. Yes, you have a title for, for a person who's doing supposedly diversity work at your organization, but are they qualified? That's the question.
0: So continuing to focus in on the idea of organizations and perhaps narrowing it into the HRD piece, what do you see as the role of HRD practitioners in addressing marginalization and privilege in the workplace?
1: Uh, I think they play a key role. So I think one of the roles they have is to really make space for these type of conversations. I know many organizations have uh, employee resource groups or whatever. That's one way where they can have like-minded people work together and then they can have discussions within their group and bring the issues forward to, to the organization that way. I think they, they play a role in providing training in the area, whether they would be using outside people or inside people who have the, you know, background in training for diversity, social justice, those topics, even within the Academy of Human Resource Development, I'm happy to see that they're moving into an anti-racism committee and have, have a statement for it. Um, they're doing a handbook. I'm working on that with Dr. Marilyn Bird. And you know they are really ready to address that. And, and I'm happy for that. I was one of the people who brought that to the forefront Saying that, you know, we haven't done any work in the area of, of racism, I and mean, racism has not been included in discussions of diversity and social justice. So I'm really happy to see that they're willing to attack it as a standalone issue that's long overdue. And, you know, I'm just happy that I can be of assistance in that.
0: Does it feel like HRD is in the position to? be in a lead role or do you see it potentially in organizations as being more a supporting role or an ally in some way? Well, I think HRD
1: has the potential to take more of a leading role because they deal with, you know, hiring and training and development within organizations. So I just think they need to expand their framework. And you know, possibly their educational lens and strategies, and you know, focus on some of these issues that haven't been grappled with over time, um, because it seems like it's kind of coming back to bite people now. You know, people are speaking up against it um, as we see more people protesting and people of all ages, intergenerational groups, which I think is good. But as I said earlier, what's the goal? Just protesting today, and then that's it. You know, what's next? So we need to protest with a goal. I think Martin Luther King and the freedom fighters in the 60s and 70s did a good job of protesting with a goal. You know, civil rights was evolved out of that. So that's a lesson learned.
0: The final question I. I'm interested in what advice you have for people who are starting to think about marginalization and privilege for the first time. You know, what advice you have for how they can analyze themselves and their own lived experiences to identify marginalization and privilege that, that they, they've experienced, but perhaps haven't brought to the surface of their reflection before?
1: I would suggest talking to people that they know, you know, from other races and backgrounds would be a good start, because it's easier to talk to people you know than it is to people you don't know. Um, I also would suggest, you know, reading a lot of books that are out there today. There's a lot of good ones out there and a lot of older ones as well, but one of my favorites is Race Matters by Cornell West kind of gets you thinking about race in different ways that, you know, race is an issue that we should be concerned about, but as well, there are matters of race that we need to address at the same time. So I think there's just a lot of great books. White Fragility is a new one that's out there talking to white people about racism, how to become a anti-racist is another good one. So there, you know, there are a lot of good books out there that I think people can read, um, to kind of get their foundation set to further explore questions. Um, so I, I would say reading, talk to people, you know, right now, there's a lot of sessions that are being offered at universities uh, I would tend to go to more of those sessions because there are scholars that are studying this topic and there are also a lot of sessions that are at local libraries and community groups so maybe you won't have anything to say but it's good to listen in to hear what what people are saying about it if you're new to trying to understand privilege and marginalization so those are just some things. Those are three three good things I think people can do that don't cost a lot of money. But, you know, it's what I call kind of soul searching, you know, learning it for myself.
0: Well, Chandra, unfortunately, we've reached the end of this part of the episode, but I want to say thank you so much for our conversation today. I've really enjoyed our time together.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you.
0: Well, please stay with us and we'll have you back later in the episode uh, when we help get our group conversation with Julie and with Josh. But for the time being, thank you so much indeed.
1: Thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you in the group on the next one.
0: My third guest for the episode is Dr. Joshua Collins, Associate Professor of Human Resource Development at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. He currently serves on the Board of Directors for the Academy of HRD and is the recipient of the 2017 Early Career Scholar Award given by the Academy, as well as numerous other awards including the Assistant Professor Award given to the University Council for Workforce and Human Resource Education. His research, which has been published in leading HRD journals and other prominent outlets, focuses on issues of learning and work for underrepresented and marginalized groups, including people of color and the LGBTQ populations. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on marginalization and privilege.
3: Thank you for having me and for hosting this podcast series, Darren. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk to you.
0: We've heard from Julie and Chaunda about what marginalization and privilege are and, and about the importance of lived experience. So I'd li- I'd like to start our conversation by exploring the implications for the workplace. And in particular, in what ways do you see marginalization and privilege showing up within organizations?
3: it is important to emphasize lived experience to fully understand the implications of marginalization and privilege in organizations. So I think I'll actually begin with a story from my own lived experience. It's the story of how I ended up pursuing the study of marginalization, privilege, uh, power, diversity and inclusion um, within HRD. And organizations more broadly to begin with. So I had this job working as a graphic designer in a recreational sports and athletics kind of environment. I worked there for about four years. Um, and I had a number of experiences working in this place that actually, you know, fueled my interest in the study of HRD and desire to go to graduate school in the first place. um, Essentially I became fascinated by how people from different backgrounds and walks of life do or as we have many of us seen um, sometimes do not learn to come together in organizations to get a job done. So I was thinking to myself like what gets in the way What mechanisms can facilitate success? How important is it to work across difference? Um, And none of my experiences better illustrates the conditions of marginalization and privilege in organizations better than the experience I had when I had announced I would actually be leaving that job to pursue other opportunities, including graduate school. So at that point, a high-level leader who I had worked with very closely over my years there asked me if I wanted to go to a goodbye lunch with him to thank me for my years of service and contributions. So, of course, I accepted that invitation as one would. Um, I was, you know, really delighted to be invited um, and I'd like to take a moment here before I finish the story to remind you of the environment of this workplace, because it's really important for understanding my experience. And again, that was a recreational sports, um, athletics kind of environment. So an occupational domain that in my own research in HRD, I would eventually come to understand as a masculinized context or a work context with a history of male dominance. And certainly within that male dominance, kind of a historical aversion to femininity, whether actual or simply perceived. And of course, I am an openly gay man. So at the time I was not out of the closet, but there were ways I presented myself and operated, um, which I'm certain gave people a clue um, as to who I was. So back to the lunch, at one point, this very senior level leader says to me, you know, Josh, I'm really surprised at how long you've been with us and how well you've done. So naturally, I'm, I'm a bit thrown by this comment. So I ask, what do you mean? And he responds, well, because, you know, you're um, frou-frou. Oh,
0: my God. <laughs>
3: I was in shock, Darren, let me just tell you. So I think I just nodded and kind of laughed, but internally was so uncomfortable. I'm thinking to myself, I've worked closely with this person for how many years and completed a number of projects really successfully and been nothing but professional and kind to him. And this at the end of the day is what he thinks of me. This is what I boiled down to for him. So obviously that, you know, really did not sit super well with me, but I didn't say anything in the moment. I think I just laughed and kind of changed the topic of conversation. Um, But this is a part of my lived experience. Um, It ended up being a catalyst for, so much of the research that I've done in HRD over the last decade, which has focused on ways that HRD can create better, more inclusive conditions in organizations for people who hold marginalized social identities. And I think it provides a perfect illustration of the many ways that marginalization and privilege can show up in organizations. He was in a position of privilege as a leader while I was not. And therefore, I didn't feel I could challenge him when he pointed to my marginality in what I felt was an inappropriate manner. My marginality was apparently impactful on the ways that I was received at work, right? Without my knowledge that this was something that was always in the back of his mind. And naively, I had no idea that my perceived femininity or my sexual orientation had any impact on the way that I was viewed. And I found out in that moment that it did. What opportunities or meetings or conversations um, might I have been left out of as a result? There's also the privilege I experienced in being asked to this lunch, though, Um, as a white male in an organizational context with a lot of other white men. I knew other people specifically women and people of color who left and were not taken to a goodbye lunch by a senior leader. So my stance is that marginality and privilege are ever-present forces in organizations, often in ways that may even be somewhat invisible. Um, And that to pretend like these forces do not exist is actually a dereliction of an important duty that we have in a workplace, which is to ensure equitable and safe working conditions.
0: It's such a sad and disappointing story. And I think part of the sadness is probably, unfortunately, those sorts of stories can be told by so many people in the workplace. Sure. Um, To to pick on something that you talked about there, you talked about the fact that the, the lunch had happened, which was a, a privileged situation, which I think hints at the fact that uh, an individual can experience both marginalization and privilege. Is, is that correct?
3: Yes, definitely. You caught on to that. I just gave one example of how that can happen. I can give another example again, based on my own lived experience. So Being, as I just pointed out, uh, a white gay man in the United States, I have experienced tremendous privilege um, on a daily basis based on the color of my skin um, and my gender identity and expression. Um, If I'm just walking down the street, I don't have a lot of concerns that people who are not white men might have. My marginality tends to show up when I am in situations where I'm surrounded by mostly heterosexual people. And that usually encompasses most of my professional contexts, right? Um, some personal context, familial context, and other areas. But when I'm in a space that is designed and intended for the LGBTQ plus community, um, surrounded by mostly other uh, people who identify with the queer community, Um, I'm often one of the most privileged people in that space, Um, not only because I'm a white man, but because I have a high level of education. um, I have a steady job. I have secure housing, um, a stable personal life. And having that awareness of when my marginality and my privilege are most salient is important to my ability not only to navigate spaces myself, but also to make them more inclusive for others um, in situations where I have the power to do that. I don't really think this is a skill set that a lot of people with primarily dominant or privileged social identities have developed because they haven't had to in a lot of cases. There's also the example of, of say, a, um, a leader or maybe an executive who's part of an underrepresented minority group, um, we don't really have to stretch our minds that far to see how both privilege and marginality can show up in those situations. So not only do I think is it possible to experience both privilege and marginality, I think marginality can be an asset in an organization's efforts to evolve systems and practices in a more inclusive manner. But um, that progress really has to be carefully and consciously protected as it comes because there will always be forces trying to destroy it.
0: In light of marginalization and privilege clearly being present within the workplace, uh, should organizations be concerned? I suppose essentially what's the case for organizations taking action on marginalization and privilege?
3: tending to issues of marginalization and privilege really should be a core component to any organization's efforts to advance um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or what people often refer to as DEI. Um, So frameworks to defining and understanding marginalization and privilege really are a precursor to good DEI efforts. They provide a method for understanding difference um, and can help us make sense of and accept seemingly new categories of diversity when they emerge. Um, And the fact of the matter is whether we realize it or not, social identities and social movements, which we view as being outside of the organizational or workplace context, they always find their way in right? Um, Because we work with people. Um, This means organizations have a choice to accept and include the whole person um, or to ignore reality essentially and create space um, for only certain types of difference or, and I've really seen this all the time, trying to advance the idea that a person, um, who a person is in society has nothing to do with how they will experience work. Um, I think we're finding increasingly that this viewpoint is not sustainable. Um, There's the ethical case for inclusion, which is based on a deep understanding of marginalization um, and privilege, the case um, that I subscribe to, um, that acting in a way that advances more justice is simply the right thing to do, and that's why organizations should do it. But there is also the business case. And um, for me, um, that business case increasingly hinges on what younger generations, um, namely millennials, Generation Z, um, the most educated generations in US history, what do these folks want out of a workplace or even out of society? And what we've seen time and time again is that these generations have been pretty clear about what they want. Um, They want to eradicate poverty. They want to eliminate racism. They want to codify women's full equal rights um, and so on. So now is really the time for organizations to get on board with these kinds of initiatives in order to remain relevant as these two generations slowly constitute the majority of the workforce over the next couple of decades.
0: So with with that call to action for organizations to get on board, what actions can you see organizations considering in response to marginalization and privilege that does show up in the workplace?
3: I recently published an article along with two colleagues at the University of Minnesota looking at promoting bystander intervention and ally development in the workplace. Um, The article was published in Human Resource Development Review. Um, So bystander intervention is a method of training people to recognize risky or detrimental situations and to intervene on behalf of targets. While ally development focuses on encouraging and developing more inclusive attitudes, um, which foster an understanding of difference and marginality. Um, I think one action that organizations could take is to implement more of this kind of work into existing DEI initiatives and efforts. Um, And I've seen some organizations where this kind of training might be offered as kind of an advanced move or an optional learning that people can opt into if they have a specific interest in DEI, but I think more organizations need to ask themselves honestly, Why isn't this requisite knowledge to maintain employment here? Why isn't it a core part of onboarding or continuing education or professional development or annual review? Um, So in order to address marginalization and to mitigate the negative effects of privilege in an organization, it really has to be a pervasive effort that touches every part of what an organization does and cares about.
0: As an organization does that, to what extent does the law help them or or help employees within the organization? So as they seek to address marginalization and privilege in the workplace, does does the law help?
3: Laws that promote greater equity and fairness are necessary and helpful, um, but they really do have some limitations. Um, First, um, in the United States, if it's not federally mandated, laws can vary greatly um, state to state, right? So it wasn't until only a couple of years ago that LGBTQ plus identities became a protected class, according to federal law. That was the result of a decades-long fight. And in the intervening several decades since that fight began, whether or not you could be fired for being gay or being transgender was completely dependent on which state you happened to live in. Another limitation can be in the wording of certain laws which afford protection to marginalized groups. For example, um, age discrimination laws often stipulate that age discrimination can only begin at the age of 40, and I think this provides significant protection for older workers and job applicants, which is extremely important for ensuring security as one ages, which is really an essential foundation to our society. Um, However, it really is not a secret that age discrimination can occur to younger workers as well. It's just not legally considered age discrimination because that doesn't begin until the age of 40. Um, So my final point here is simply to reiterate how limited the law actually can be in terms of addressing issues of marginalization and privilege. Um, And for this, I will point to an example that cuts across most industries, organizations, and workplaces. Um, And that example is the example of the paid holiday. while it's changing in some places, the vast majority of organizations um, and certainly, you know, places that I've worked, places that I've I've known people to work, most of them give preferential treatment to Christian holidays. Um, everyone gets Christmas off, for example, or sometimes even Easter. Um, maybe there's a floating holiday for use elsewhere, but in terms of the holidays that are automatically recognized almost always it is Christian holidays. And why is that? Well, it's because of the limitations of the law. And it's also because Christian privilege is so pervasive in the United States, a lot of people don't even think to question it. So I think a reliance on only what existing laws are to dictate organizational policy regarding marginalization and privilege and DEI that's a really misguided way to approach the subject. Instead, um, going back to what I mentioned earlier, I think it is beneficial for organizations and HRD professionals to engage in higher level conversations about their values as they relate to these concepts that we've been discussing and to develop whatever approaches end up being necessary to respond in more inclusive ways regardless of what the law dictates.
0: As a final question, I'm reflecting back on our conversation and you, you've spoken and given several examples of actions that organizations can take. And, and of course you also shared a, a moving story of your own experience, lived experience of the, uh, the goodbye meal and the way that you were treated. Uh, putting those together, I'm wondering how important it is that organizations have senior leaders who've experienced marginalization themselves and whether that's one of the actions that organizations should be taking now.
3: I think it's so important. Um, And let me just say, you know, your senior leaders who have experienced marginalization shouldn't only be in DEI oriented positions. I cannot tell you how many organizations of all sizes I've seen where several VPs and executives, they're all white men, um, with the exception of the VP for diversity, who is a woman, and in a lot of cases, a white woman. It just isn't tenable for actually advancing the work. Um, And you'll find, too, that folks who are tasked with advancing greater equity and justice in organizations are often paid less for that work. So I think a part of this conversation is also the importance of compensating expertise related to marginalization and privilege the same way we compensate expertise in finance or IT or employee engagement. But going back to the heart of of your original question, I think there are many reasons why this is important. Certainly representation is one of them, right? That people from underrepresented or marginalized backgrounds deserve to and need to see people who are like them in those higher level positions, um, sometimes even just to be able to imagine themselves experiencing a similar success. I think another important component is simply an understanding of the experience of marginalization really lends itself to being a more compassionate leader and one who can address discrimination and other forms of maltreatment without engaging in what I refer to as um, both sideism, or giving equal weight to the voice of the person who makes a racist or a sexist or homophobic comment or action or policy. When you have experienced marginality, you know what to look for. Um, You don't need someone to explain to you why what they have been through was traumatizing or demoralizing or negatively impactful on their engagement. You just get it because you've been through something similar as well. Um, And I think that is so very important and yet doesn't happen very often. Far too often when people come forward about their experiences with marginalization they are questioned, or they're told they're overreacting, um, or they're encouraged to let it go. Um, And I think much more attention needs to be given to what are the ramifications and repercussions for the person who is creating the environment of marginalization, um, rather than fixing the person who has been the target. Um, And I think that happens a lot more when leaders have had those experiences as well.
0: Well, Josh, thank you so much indeed for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation on marginalization and privilege.
3: Thanks, Darren, for having me.
0: Well, please stay with us and we'll have you back in the next section of the episode for the group conversation with Julie and with Chaunda. Looking forward to it. Up next, we have the group discussion where my guests are together to discuss their shared passion for the episode's topic. This discussion is brought to you thanks to the Board of Directors of the Academy of Human Resource Development, who invite you to attend the 29th Annual Research Conference in the Americas being held in Arlington, Virginia, February 23rd to 26th. It's the ideal opportunity to meet leading scholars, researchers and rising stars, including many of the guests on this podcast as they report their cutting-edge research and share insights on rethinking the meaning of work. The event is perfect for learning and networking. You can also opt to attend some of the conference virtually. For full details, click on the conference link on the AHRD homepage at ahrd.org. Welcome back to the HRD Masterclass. Our focus for this episode is marginalization and privilege, and I've already met one-to-one with Julie Gedrow, Chonda Scott, and Josh Collins. And for the final section of the episode, we're all together for our group chat. So welcome back, Julie, Chonda, and Josh. Glad to be here. Thanks,
1: Darren. Great to be here again. Thank you, Darren. It's good to be here.
0: So for our group conversation, I'd like to dig a little into some of the topics from your one-to-ones and also explore a couple of new ideas. And to start us off, in the episode so far, we've heard about privilege and also about learned experiences. So I'm wondering what your advice is for how someone questions their own privilege and listens to stories of others' lived experiences and then learns from that.
3: As we engage in the work of addressing marginalization and privilege, one of the most important skills that we can develop is the skill of being able to depersonalize moments when we learn we are wrong. In other words, to be okay with being called out from time to time and to be okay with Being uncomfortable. I have found that some of the best opportunities to learn, to question my own privilege, have come in those uncomfortable moments. Sometimes those moments can even be the result of a time when we're trying to do the right thing, but take a misstep. I'll model a little bit of vulnerability for a moment, and I can actually give an example of this in my own journey from just a couple of years ago. I was a part of a dissertation committee for a white doctoral student who was looking at issues of race in higher education, Um, as is customary before one of our meetings, the student um, was outside the room, while we had a private faculty committee discussion about any major concerns. And at that time, I noted to this group of five faculty that I felt like we really needed to be conscientious about how we approached and encouraged the student to approach the issue of race in higher education, given that um, what I thought, I said, you know, everyone on the committee is white. And at that moment, one of the other committee members immediately corrected me to remind me that they are in fact, Indigenous, and that I had just erased a part of them. In that moment, of course, my, my stomach dropped as I immediately realized that I had committed a microaggression, the very type of behavior I not only dislike when it's directed at me in some way, but that I also have actively put a lot of learning into over the years to try and avoid. But at that same moment that my stomach dropped, I also learned an important lesson that is permanent in terms of its impact on the way I approach discussions about race, ethnicity, indigeneity. And shortly after the meeting, I briefly connected with this colleague to offer a thank you for their correction. And that was a very intentional choice, not to offer an apology um, centered on my own white guilt, which needed to be absolved. But to instead center their experience in the interaction, which was that they, they willingly provided me, you know, some of their knowledge, a little bit of who they were in a space where I had committed a microaggression and made them feel uncomfortable. And of course, I also vowed not to make that same misstep twice. But dealing with being called out or really being called to task on these issues really be that simple there's always something to learn from an experience and to apply moving forward and i think if i'm speaking to anyone out there who's scared to jump in the conversation simply because you're afraid you might not say the right thing my experience is that people really can see and are willing to receive your heart being a good privileged ally to marginalized groups is not necessarily about getting it right 100% of the time, but instead about making your best effort and being able to own your mistakes and take sincere action to redirect your journey and your learning. It sounds like there's a lot
0: to be gained from conversations about lived experiences. And so how can we create an environment where people feel safe having a conversation about lived experience in a way that enables them to learn from each other?
1: This is a very important question. I do believe that having some type of ground rules as a starter Because many times I'm finding within the academic setting and maybe in some community settings that I'm involved with, this is the first time that, you know, people are really willing to engage in something so serious, such as marginalization, privilege, racism. And so I think if you have some type of ground rules to kind of put forward or maybe pass out to people, then it makes people feel a little bit comfortable. Because I think many times I've been in conversations that, you know, we just started these types of conversations. They just happen. And then people feel uncomfortable to say what they really feel. They freeze up or or else some people go full speed ahead. And then they say some things that, you know, sometimes people may take it out of context. Feelings get hurt. So I think if there's some type of ground rules to say that everyone's experience is valuable, we want to take time to listen without interrupting. We want to support each other. And if we don't have a comment to say about it, then it's best not to say anything. Don't put people on the spot and kind of force them to say something if they don't have to. But I will say, since the George Floyd murder, uh, my involvement in academia and in my community organization, Minnesota's Black Community Project, there's been a lot of conversations about marginalization, whiteness, privilege, and racism, and the majority of people have been white. So again, I'm grateful to see that more people are willing to engage in that because a lot of learning can come out of that and, you know, ways we can help
3: each other. I absolutely agree, and I think we should treat these kinds of conversations in organizational spaces the same way we treat a lot of other conversations, in that people are expected to have at least some sort of of requisite knowledge as they enter that conversation. So in addition to ground rules, it can be a good idea to circulate readings or um, videos or other materials ahead of Engaging in a conversation so that people can learn more of basic language or learn about maybe history that they haven't been exposed to before they enter a conversation and ask questions, which can frankly frustrate those who have the lived experience of marginalization and can be tired of explaining themselves. So, I think in addition to ground rules, um, some of that pre learning in organizational settings should really occur to facilitate a safer and more meaningful conversation.
0: During the episode we've touched occasionally on the concept of diversity and inclusion and for many organizations that means diversity and inclusion training. So I'm I'm wondering how effective diversity and inclusion training is in addressing marginalization and privilege within organizations and what steps could be taken to make it more effective?
2: I would recommend a mindset that is not transactional. A transactional approach to diversity and inclusion is going to be short-lived. DEI is not a skill, but it certainly can be considered a competency. And given the evolution of considering difference, DEI training is not just one season with X number of episodes. It should be an ongoing initiative in a company and organization. DEI programs have a great potential to transform, and there are a set of questions that I would offer that designers and developers should think about as an HRD intervention is being conceptualized and designed and delivered and evaluated. The first question that I would recommend that you think about is Do you have a strategy of hope or do you have a strategy of of intention and commitment? Because those are two different mindsets when thinking about DEI training. The second is this Whose eyes and ears matter when it comes to the optics and the sound bites of the initiative? Is this for show or is this for real? Third question. Do you have the talent within your company or organization to get some effective and transformative HRD work done? Or should there be a bit of an arm's length, some distance between the HRD practitioner and the organization? Four, what is the role that the identity of the HRD professional plays? To what extent does the trainer's identity facilitate credibility and confidence. I've written about the role, the identity of the trainer plays in a way that does not offer a prescription or a formula, but rather raises up the question. It bears thinking through the identity of the HRD professional because their presence is part of the learning environment and their ability to create the environment where learning can occur increases the possibility that change can happen.
3: Yeah, Julie, thank you for sharing that. We don't actually know the effectiveness of a lot of our diversity and inclusion training because it doesn't get assessed and it doesn't get evaluated the same way that a lot of other things do. I think that happens for a reason. I think that organizations know that at the point when they were to really evaluate, deeply evaluate Um, the effectiveness of their diversity and inclusion training, they might find that it's not so effective.
1: Yeah, I agree with what both of you are saying, but I would add that with the role of diversity training to date, it has not really addressed marginalization of racism, privilege, you know, at all. It's just kind of been race, gender, age, sexual orientation. And in my view, they've done a very poor job of doing that because it's just been trendy. I'm doing a study right now looking at police officers training for diversity. And what I've been finding in Michigan, most of the training is online. So they can just click, click, click until they get the right answer. I mean, what is that? And they're working with diverse communities. They're protecting and serving diverse communities. But again, they're not really immersed in what they're doing. So to close, I think more work needs to be done in
3: diversity
0: training. So we're talking there about how we prepare people for work on marginalization and privilege. And it makes me think about what we're doing for HRD professionals in that space. So so how do we prepare HRD professionals for their work on marginalization and privilege and what changes would you like to see in that area?
2: Learning is at the heart of this work. And so we need to equip HRD professionals to be able to identify the different levels necessary for this work. So when designing a program or a series of programs, the time spent on determining the scaffolding of knowledge, terminology, theories, models from which to build is time well spent. And I would encourage those responsible for these efforts to avail themselves of the episodes in this masterclass that precede this episode, because they cover areas that are vital to this work that equips HRD professionals to assess the current state of the organization and to develop tools and programs designed to strategically move the organization along The ability to listen, connect, empathize, and demonstrate modulated compassion for those who are at different points on a journey can help create the conditions by which an environment of learning is possible. And I would recommend that we equip HRD practitioners to acquire the mindset of a strategist, to be able to see the big picture and to identify areas of resistance or apathy and to develop ways to address people, groups, or other areas of influence. DEI must be a harmonization of HRD and HRM. HRD cultivates conditions by which culture, practices, interactions, exchanges can improve. HRM must follow suit with people practices that reflect the organization's commitment to real change. This must be an explicitly identified facet of a company identity, and it requires a shift in those policies and practices and habits, and also I suggest it requires a shift of the heart.
3: The reality is marginalization and privilege really touches every part of an organization. So every person in HRD or researching in HRD, to my mind, has a responsibility toward these issues. I'd like to see all HRD graduate students exposed to, for example, black feminist thought and other core ideologies that we center our work and marginalization and privilege on.
1: I agree with that, Josh. I was just thinking about some of those things as well as Julie was um, talking. And I would like to see more research, more conference presentations on these issues, at least in the beginning, you know, we do have a core group of scholars at where we could be training up graduate students to, to further this work.
0: Throughout the episode, we've talked about the sort of changes we'd like to see within organizations and presumably those changes, as we try and implement them, uh, experience some sort of forces that are acting to sustain the status quo. So I'm wondering what those forces are that are acting to limit change, and and how can H R D work to overcome those forces?
3: At the most foundational level, I think the biggest force which limits change is that some people don't want to promote change because effective change will require the acknowledgement of wrongdoing. We can't address marginalization and privilege until we allow the truth about people's experiences to surface no matter how uncomfortable it makes us. I also think another force is simply that more explicit and implicit bias than we usually want to acknowledge exists. I know white people who want to pretend that slavery in the United States was so long ago, but the reality is that there are Black people living right now whose grandparents were literally born into slavery. I know heterosexual people who want to argue that because Glee had a few stereotypical characters, gay rights are solved. So we cannot accept vantage points, which are disconnected from reality. We really just can't. Bias exists. So what will your organization do about it?
1: I agree with that. I think that, you know, some of the forces within organizations today are just because they've done it this same way you know, all the time. We've always done it this way. So it continues on for years and years and years. And then as times change, the organizations don't change. So I think we we have to be more open to change and that's going to change the way we, we do things or have done things in the past. So, you know, we need to have more recruitment efforts to get more people of color involved in organizations and in, and in the academy. We need to be opening up more lines of research and interest. As we said you know previously, it shouldn't be a special to- topic just because it's anti-racism. It should be a part of the HRD work that we're doing. So you know, we, we just need to expand upon it. I mean, we've always done it this way, but it doesn't mean that it has to be that way.
0: That gives us a nice segue to our final question then, because the, the Academy's mission is to lead HRD through research. And so I'm wondering what research is needed on HRD's work on marginalization and privilege, and what should be the research priorities for the coming years?
1: I think we should just be more open to DEI concerns. It needs to just be a main part of our work. So I think we need more work on anti-racism. I think it's new and exciting right now. But how do we really engage in anti-racism work? You know, what is the goal of anti-racism work? Why do people marginalize other people? Why aren't people understanding that privilege exists? We still need to do more work on critical race theory I think especially now that it's being challenged, you know, I think for those of us who are doing that work and writing uh, about critical race theory, I think we need to respond to what's going on right now. We we shouldn't be silent. So I think that's one way that you know, we can kind of change our priorities around research in HRD. You know, there's still a lot of hard questions. That need to be answered, and I think we're entering into that space right now, to where you know we're really ready and open to talk about it. So I think we really need to dive in and start answering some of these questions. As my pastor would say, it's not for chumps;
3: it's a lot of work. I couldn't agree more, Chanda. What everybody can do is do things like start asking complete demographic questions in your studies, questions that account for multiple facets of diversity, questions around gender identity and expression, um, sexual orientation, having a full range of responses available there for people. I maybe have seen a few studies in HRD, and that's being generous, where Sexual orientation was a demographic data question and the study wasn't about LGBTQ people. That's really important information. Uh, To me it is, you know, because every LGBTQ person I know operates differently in the world and it's just not reflected in our research because we're not asking the question. Um, So, you know, I would encourage everyone who does research whether you consider yourself critical or not, These are things you can do to help move the needle on these issues.
2: What I hope is that we have an abiding fascination for doing work that disrupts marginalization and privilege across all related dimensions, but in particular racism. And I'm I'm hoping that we intensify our efforts to do research that takes into account economics, sociology, psychology, environmental issues, that we intensify our efforts at examining issues of uh, differently abled, the effects of the pandemic, climate disasters, and the mental health and addiction issues that are going to be created or exacerbated by everything that we're living through right now. And I think to layer, to layer on aspects of identity and particularly marginalization has a compounding effect on, on people's lives and their work lives. So We've got so much more to do in this field, and I remain
0: hopeful. That sounds a wonderful way in which to wrap up our conversation, indeed, our episode. So Unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time. And so I want to say a big thank you to all of you for the one-to-one conversations and for this group conversation and for being a part of our discussion on marginalization and privilege. Thank you so much indeed.
3: Thank you, Darren. Thank, thank you, Darren. You.
0: Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Julie, Chonda, and Josh. If you enjoyed this episode, check out all of our others. There were 11 episodes in the first season and we're releasing a further 11 here in the second. Between them, they provide access to conversations with over 50 leading HRD scholars. New episodes release weekly. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com. And to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org. By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials not included in the podcast. Also, don't forget to look into our sponsors, Interpretive Simulations. Check out their website at interpretive.com. And by the Board of Directors of the Academy of Human Resource Development, who invite you to attend the 29th Annual Research Conference in the Americas being held in Arlington, Virginia, February 23rd to 26th. For full details, click on the conference link on the AHRD homepage at ahrd.org. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode. Until then, this is Darren Short signing off from the HRD Masterclass. HRD Masterclass Podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.